I want you to think this thought because it's a good thought. If we want the Holy Spirit to make good use of our lives here on earth, then we need to get in line with the program that the Holy Spirit started 2,000 years ago. I thought we would start with um, uh, a message here on the birthday of the church. How about that? The birthday of the church. Now, a child's birthday is normally a time of joy. This morning, we shared with you the picture pictures, plural, of little Hannah Wang, and she's a sweetie. And we had today uh, uh, Glenn celebrating this very day, his birthday, and we're excited for him as well. But, you know, sometimes birthdays are not always uh, a time of celebration and joy. I'll give you an example. Though they loved him dearly, the parents of Moses, when he was born, they had to hide him, put him in hiding for fear that the Egyptians would kill him. And so it was not a big celebration at all, was it? Um, If it were up to us to make arrangements for the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ into the earth, I'm sure we would probably all want to plan a big fanfare. We would want to do something, you know, big and over the top. And yet, when you read the accounts of the birth of our Lord Jesus, um, well... Aside from some angels singing his praises, the only ones who showed up on his actual very birth, the night of his birth, were a few shepherds. That was it. Even the wise men, they came upwards of two years later uh, to visit and to worship him. But when Jesus planned the birthday of his church, it seems to me, at least, that he decided to do it with a little bit of fanfare. Now, as I read the account, it sounds exciting to me. And I'm sure it sounds exciting to you too. If I were to ask you how many of you would love to have been there on that day, you know, that day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, how many of you would love to have been there in Jerusalem and watch what happens and see and experience everything? I'm sure every hand would go up. It's an exciting thing. I, I, I believe it. But the key player in the birthday of the church is the Holy Spirit. He is, without a doubt, the key player. And we have to keep that in mind. The Holy Spirit was the key player in the birth, life, and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit is the key player in the birth, life, and ministry of the New Testament church as well. And so today, what I'd like is for us to examine more closely Just exactly what did the Holy Spirit do? Because you see, the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. And we sang that just earlier. And we read about it just now. And so we want to examine exactly what he did and what he can do for us as well. So let's close our eyes and pray first. And then we'll look at this. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have the Bible today. And every one of us has copies Many of us have numerous copies of the Bible. Father, we do pray that you would help us to grow in our faith now and use that growth to result in the glory of God. And we pray that things would happen in the days to come, not because of us, not by our power, nor by our might, but by your Spirit, your Holy Spirit, 
That's what we want. And so, Spirit of God, teach us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, when the Lord Jesus was on earth, he um, at one point started his church. There is some discussion as to when the church actually began. And so some people feel that it was um, during the days of Jesus. Well, during the days of Jesus, he did start talking about his church. Matthew chapter 16, Matthew chapter 18. He's definitely talking about his church. And he was definitely preparing the disciples for what was to come. Up to that point, he had been preaching about the kingdom. But when the nation Israel officially refused him, his preaching changed and he started preaching about the cross. And at that point, he started preparing. So in embryotic form, the church was already alive. And it was, it was being formed by the teachings of Jesus. And of course, it had its official big birthday with the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. That day of Pentecost, what in the world was that? We hear about it, we talk about it, we read about it. Well, what is this Pentecost, this Feast of Pentecost? The Feast of Pentecost is an Old Testament Jewish feast. It's first found in Exodus chapter 34. And it's called there the Feast of Weeks, W-E-E-K-S. Like seven days in a week. The Feast of Weeks, that's what it's called. In Hebrew, they call it Shavuot, which means weeks. That's what they refer to as this, this Feast of Weeks. And um, it's called this because in Leviticus 23, the feast was to occur exactly seven weeks and one day after Passover. So the Jews would have Passover and then they would count seven weeks and one day and that was the Feast of Weeks, or Shavuot. Uh, or in the New Testament, we call it Pentecost. Say, Pentecost, where'd that come from? That doesn't sound like weeks. No. You see, if you add up the seven weeks, you get 49 days, plus one day, how many days you got? 50. Easy math. Easy peasy. And so, in Greek, they called it Pentecost, which means 50. So when they say Pentecost, they're talking about this special Jewish festival feast. When they say Shavuot, they're talking about the same thing. When they say the Feast of Weeks, they're talking about the same thing. It all boils down to the same harvest festival that was 50 days after the Passover. Okay? So that's what the meaning is of, uh, of Pentecost. Now, something else about Pentecost is that this very, the very first Pentecost, the very first Shavuot, whatever, it was actually given the very same time that God was giving the law. He gave Moses' law on that same day. That day was the 50th day. When Moses was up in the mountain getting the, the law from God, the people were down below. Remember that? How many remember that one? Put up your hand if you remember that one. How many aren't too sure? <laughs> okay. Well, that's all right. We do need to uh, study up on these. Now, the, uh, the Feast of Weeks, the Pentecost, it was one of three big Israeli festivals. Israeli festivals. 
in which all of the males, all of the men in Israel were required to come to Jerusalem. Now Passover was one of those. But then there was 50 days later, there was Pentecost. And all of the males by Mosaic law were required to show up in Jerusalem. So for Passover, families, men, women, children all came. But for Pentecost, the men had to be there. The women could come too. But the men had to be there. Oftentimes the lady folk and the children would stay at home. But the men had to be there. That was by law. They had to do that. That's why there were so many men present in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 2. That's why there were so many men there. Now something interesting for you. Um, on the very first Pentecost, we'll call it. Uh, God gave the law of Moses, the law to his people on Mount Sinai, it began what is known as the covenant of law, the covenant of Mosaic law. It began when God gave it, and he gave it on that 50th day. And then 1,400 years later, whatever approximately, here we are in Acts chapter 2, and at this Pentecost, it began the covenant of grace. So you have the covenant of law, having been given on that first Pentecost. I hope you understand what I'm referring to when I say Pentecost. It's all the same thing, right? That festival. And in Acts chapter 2 in Jerusalem, you have the covenant of grace that was begun. Law and grace. Something else. On the very first Pentecost at Sinai, God made the sound of a loud trumpet. He made the big loud sound of a trumpet. And in Acts chapter 2, in Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit made the sound of a loud rushing wind. That's interesting. Something else, on the very first Pentecost at Mount Sinai, when God gave the law, the people were down below, and they were committing sin by worshiping the golden calf. And of course, God wasn't pleased. And on that day, that very day, when God gave the law, on that very first Pentecost, 3,000 people died because of their sin. But fast forward to Acts chapter 2, to this Pentecost in Jerusalem, God gave the Holy Spirit, and 3,000 people got saved and baptized. Isn't that interesting? It's amazing what we can learn when we compare Scripture with Scripture. And so anyhow, 50 days after Passover in Jerusalem, the whole city was filled with people, mainly with men. Mainly with men. And Jesus' disciples were there as well, and they were gathered together in a little house nearby the temple. Now look at Acts chapter 2. Please look again at verses 2 to 4. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and filled all the house where they were sitting, and there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so this is what was going on. The Holy Spirit was being given in a very dramatic way. It was a lot of fanfare for the birthday of the church. Now at this point, the disciples must have come out of the house because all of the people there, mainly men, 
heard them speaking the great, wonderful things of God. And they wouldn't have been able to hear that if they had been in the house. But here is when the Holy Spirit started to really do his miracle. The sound of rushing mighty wind, we had that here in Surrey just a few days ago or a week ago. And I lost a few little branches off my tree in my front yard. We've had the sound of rushing mighty wind before. Anywhere in the world, all over the place, it happens. Uh, a hurricane, a tornado, sure makes the sound of a rushing mighty wind. But it does get people's attention, that's for sure. That sound gets people's attention. But then the Holy Spirit did more than that. And these men started speaking in tongues, the miracle of tongues. Now, we may wonder, what were these tongues? And exactly who was doing them? What were the tongues? Well, we read here that Jewish men from all over the then-known world, essentially the Roman Empire, Jewish men had converged upon Jerusalem that day, and they said that they were listening to these Galilean men speaking the wonderful works of God but the funny thing is that they were all hearing it in their native languages. In a modern day context, supposing that we were there 2,000 years ago and we saw the Galilean fishermen stand up and they were all talking about the wonderful things God is doing. And I, I turned to one of you and I said, isn't that something? I didn't know they could speak English. They're all speaking about the wonderful things of God. And maybe one of you turned to me and said, Pastor, you're wrong. They're speaking Tagalog. That's Tagalog. That's the, my native tongue. They're talking all about the wonderful things of God. Just then someone taps them on the shoulder and says, whoa, wait a minute. You're both wrong. Huh. They're speaking French. I, 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 I was born in Quebec. And that, that's French. I, I'll tell you, that's French. And this was the miracle that was happening. Is that all of the men... Uh, there's probably some women there too, but mainly it was all men because it was the Feast of, of Weeks, uh, Pentecost, and they were hearing, and they couldn't believe what they were hearing. They heard these wonderful things, wonderful, amazing things in their own language, their native language. Remember that the people then, like many people in the world today, speak more than one language. How many here speak more than one language? Raise your hand. Okay, so that's at least two languages. Put your hands out. How many speak three languages? Raise your hand. One, two, three, four, five, and a shaky hand, six, seven. All right, anybody speak four languages? One, anyone else? Four languages? Do I hear five? Do I hear five going once? Four languages. What are the languages, brother? Russian, Ukrainian, English, and Polish. <laughs> Praise the Lord, I'm still working on English. <laughs> That's wonderful, wonderful. Well, can you imagine how confused and thrilled we'd be by this event? I mean, we'd be buzzing with conversation and talk, wouldn't we? What's going on here? How is this even possible? And this is what the Holy Spirit did. This was the day of Pentecost here. They all heard them talking the wonderful things of God, but they all heard them in their own native languages. And so this was a real miracle. Now, um, some of the people there today, some of the men were from different parts of the Roman Empire and they'd actually heard uh, some speaking in tongues because the 
in the Roman Empire, they had a lot of pagan temples. And, for example, the pagan temple of Aphrodite. That was a real wicked religion and a pagan one, to be sure. But they would have ecstatic utterances and babble and gibberish, and they would be speaking in a crazy uh, language. They would do that. And some of the men that were there in Jerusalem would have heard that before. But the funny thing is that they recognized these men as Galileans by the way they dressed, by the way they conducted themselves. The Galileans were more the, the blue-collar workers. They weren't the upper crust. And so they didn't raise their little pinky as they sipped their tea. They'd grab the whole of a mug and down it goes. That was the Galileans. Those were Galileans. They were illiterate. They didn't go to refined schools. They didn't learn languages. What is happening? Those are rough, grunt kind of fishermen. How is this even possible? That they're speaking all of these languages. So you can see quite a buzz that was going on. And they were all just confused what was, what was happening here. And then you get the mockers. The mockers. Chapter 2, verse 12 and they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? Verse 13, Others mocking said, These men are full of new wine. These men are full of new wine. Now, many think that that means alcoholic wine. But if you'll check elsewhere in the scriptures, new wine came right off the, the branch, was squished, you know, the grapes, they squished it, and you had grape juice. Now, the thing is, Grape juice, when you pick it at the right time, has the highest sugar content. And so it seems like they were saying that these guys were on a sugar high. Have you ever seen a kid on a sugar high? You parents, you give the kid a, some chocolate, and boy, they're, they're dancing. Well, people get on sugar highs too. Sometimes... People, uh, adults get on caffeine highs and they get a real buzz off these, you know, lattes, these great big grandes that they get. Some of them buy the monster drinks full of, of sugar and caffeine. And yeah, they get a buzz. And so others think that this talks of uh, alcohol. Personally, I think it was not alcoholic that they were saying because of the time of day, but I think they were saying that it was... Uh, uh, it, was, it was more sugary stuff. But here are the mockers. Now, folks, there's always going to be mockers. Always, always going to be mockers. There are people who mock our church. They're out there. Uh, we have a Facebook chat box. And sometimes people, when they watch our service, sometimes they'll type in something really stupid or something really rude or they'll mock my sermon or something like that. But... Folks, listen, if wicked mockers were around in Jesus' day and if they mocked Jesus and if they mocked Peter and the apostles, don't you think that we're going to get mocked as well? Don't you think there's someone out there who finds out you go to church on Sundays? huh? And don't you think that they're mocking you? And maybe there's someone where you work and they find out you go to church twice on Sunday. Well, you are the, the talk of the town, aren't you? Ho, 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 holy Joe. He goes to church twice on Sunday. And they laugh. And they say, yeah, I'd be lucky if I go to church twice in a year. Yeah. 
Well, anyhow, wicked people are always doing that. But back to the day of Pentecost here. The Holy Spirit filled the Apostle Peter and all of a sudden Peter makes a quotation out of Joel. And we're going to look at that. And, but the first we have to ask, well, what was Peter trying to communicate? And this is part of the confusion these days. That some people say, well, what Peter was doing is he was saying to all of the mockers and all of the men in Jerusalem that day, he was saying, hey, what you're seeing is a fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. And that's what some people are saying about Acts chapter 2. But that's not what Acts chapter 2 is saying. Peter was not saying that this was a fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. And folks, this is where we need to be very careful Bible students. We need to put aside what someone else said. We need to put aside what we were taught, maybe in another religion or something. We need to set it aside and look at what's in front of us. And this will answer the question for us today, I promise you. We believe the proper way to interpret the Bible is using what we call the common sense method. If we take it a step further, the common sense method is called the literal, grammatical, historical method. It's a common sense method. It's like you pick up a magazine or a newspaper and you would interpret it with common sense. Taking into account, you know, the expressions of speech and so on. You would understand it normally, logically, naturally. A common sense method. Someone has wisely said, when the common sense makes plain sense then don't seek some other sense. But what we have happened today is we have people that read it and they say, well, it doesn't mean what it says. It means something else. And folks, once you open that door, then the Bible is no longer good because it, it'll mean anything you want. You can make Judas the hero and Jesus the bad guy using that method. So that's why we discard that method. That's why we believe that we need to understand the Bible using literal, grammatical, historical. Now, it's very simple. The literal method, the literal part of the method, means we understand the Bible as literature. And it, it says something, and so we take it at face value. Now, if there's an analogy, we understand it as analogy. If there's a parable, we understand it as a parable. If there's a figure of speech, we understand it as a figure of speech. If there's a symbol, we seek to understand what that symbol is. But this is the literal part. And then the grammatical part simply means the grammar. We look at the grammar. What are the pronouns used? Now for some of this we have to be able to look at the Greek and the Hebrew. But if there are masculine pronouns used, then that's what it means. That it's masculine as opposed to feminine. The Holy Spirit has a lot of masculine pronouns and uh, second person, th third person uh, pronouns. So he is definitely a person. There are groups and people that don't seem to think the Holy Spirit is a real person. They have to discard the grammatical part of the normal method. If there's a question mark at the end of the sentence, what do we understand that, question, that, that sentence to be? A question. The sentence is asking a question. If there's a period at the end of the sentence, what does that mean? It's a statement. You see? And so this is part of the grammatical. And then there's the historical part. Literal, grammatical, historical part. 
means that we need to understand it in the context of 2,000 years ago, the history part. They had different figures of speech back then. Just like in different languages, we have different figures of speech, by the way. They understood things a certain way back then. And we have to try and get in their head. This is where we have to do some study. Study to show thyself approved unto God. It's for all of us, folks, not just for the preacher. We all have to do this. And so the historical part is very important. And of course, we look at context. We look at the context. If you walked in the room and there was someone talking to me and I said to that person, I'm going to kill you. You've got no context as to what I meant when I said that. What I could have meant was, I plan on taking a gun and shooting you. I could have meant that. But what I also could have meant, and more probable, is that I was telling this person that before I came today, someone walked up to me and said, I'm going to kill you. And if you don't get the context in which the sentence is made, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. And so context is very important. Literal, grammatical, historical. Does this make sense? Yes? Does this make common sense? Does it make plain sense? Then seek no other sense. And so this is the method that we use here. Now I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. In Acts chapter 2, some people seem to think that all 120 of the disciples were gathered in that house, speaking in tongues. If you look back to chapter 1, verse 15, it'll tell you, in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples and said, the number of names together were about 120. So there's the 120 right there. And then when we come to Acts chapter 2, and we pick up in verse 1, and we read, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all gathered in one place. And so some people naturally think that all 120 were gathered in one house. Do you have a house big enough to hold 120 people? Do you? You know, I don't. I, and in Jerusalem, those houses were small. They were compacted together, unless your name was Herod, in which case he owned the palace, or in which case, or if, you're, if you were the high priest, he also owned a palace. But most, all of the houses were small. The city of Jerusalem was a city compacted together. So, historically, it tells us, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense, 120 all in one little house? Right away, red flags should be going up. Uh, but this, anyhow, is not what the Bible is telling us. I want you to look at the pronouns. Now, I'm going to read them and I'm going to tell you right away, they're all masculine pronouns. It's a masculine, it's not generic, it's not feminine, they're masculine pronouns. And remember, who was in Jerusalem? The greater amount of people were what? Men, because of the Feast of Pentecost. All of the men were required to be in Jerusalem. And so, you know, you think a, a boy's locker room, you know, has a tone to it. I'm sure that the city of Jerusalem may have had a bit of a tone with all of these tens of thousands and tens and tens of thousands of men in there, grunting and sweating and everything. So, chapter 2, look please at verse number 1. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all, those are Greek 
masculine pronouns. And by the way, let me throw this in. When we come to chapter 2, we somehow seem to put a a line there and we forget all about chapter 1. Look at the last verse of chapter 1. And they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell upon Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. You see what that chapter division sometimes can do to us? It can all of a sudden make us think, "Uh uh-oh, and we change gears, we switch gears, and wow, we're talking about the 120. We're not. Because there were women part of that 120. But here, masculine pronouns. Look at verse 2. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as a rushing mighty wind. It filled all the house where they were sitting. That's a masculine pronoun. So only the men were in the house sitting. Uh, Verse 3. And there appeared unto them, masculine pronoun, cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them, masculine pronoun. Verse 4. And they, masculine pronoun, were all masculine pronoun, filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them masculine pronoun utterance. They're all masculine pronouns. We're talking just the men. And specifically, if you look at the context, the men we're talking about are the 12 apostles. These were the guys in the one house sitting down. Now that makes sense. Because those houses could easily have 12 men in them sitting down. So contextually, historically, it makes sense. Grammatically, it's talking about the men. Look at the context again. Look at verse 7, chapter 2, verse 7. And they were all amazed and marveled. This is the crowd of men that was in Jerusalem, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? The 120 weren't all from Galilee. The 120 in Acts chapter 1 verse 15 were from different parts. Some of them right there in Jerusalem. But the apostles, the 12, were from Galilee. That's the context. You see the context? So you you, you see why it's important that we rightly divide the Word of God. Um, In in verses uh, 14 to 15, Peter standing up with the 11. You see, again, and he talks about these, the other 11. Um, Chapter 2, verse 37. Uh, Now, when they, that's the crowd that was listening, heard this, they were pricked in their heart, and they said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles. You see that? Peter and the 11 apostles are the ones in focus all through this chapter. It's Peter and the other 11 that stood up. It's Peter and the 11 that were speaking in tongues. It was Peter and the 11 that was giving witness to the great things of God. Not the 120, it was the 12. Again, uh, over the years, I've heard it, I've read it, where uh, people say that, you know, the women were in here as well, uh, speaking in tongues on that day. But um, you say, where do they get that from? Well, they justify it from chapter 2 and verse 17 and 18, the quote that Peter made. Here's the quote. And it shall come to pass in that day, in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters. See, there it is right there. There's the women. There's the women. So they, they say they had to have been there. The women had to have been there speaking in tongues. But that is not what this passage is referring to. And I'm going to show that to you. I, I really think you're being very patient with me today in this message But I think it's important, don't you? Amen? That we come to a knowledge of the truth. 
And so Peter makes this quote from Joel. And it's a famous quote and it's a great quote. You could go back to Joel chapter 2 and read it. But if you went back to Joel chapter 2 and you read it, and then you read what Peter quoted, you'd find it's basically the same. But what was it that Joel was talking about? What was it that Joel prophesied? And why did Peter pick up on that? Of all of the Old Testament verses, why did Peter reach in and grab Joel chapter 2 and, and throw it out here? Well, watch. I'll read it through. And I want you to look for a key word. I'm going to read it through now. Verse 17. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And so, what is Joel saying that the young men and the young women are going to do in the last days? What is it? One word. Prophesy. They're going to prophesy. It doesn't say they're going to speak in tongues. Now someone says, well, wait a minute. What's the difference? Isn't it the same? Does the Bible make a difference between prophecy and tongues? Keep your finger there in Acts chapter 2 and go to the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. Just a few pages to the right, past Romans to 1 Corinthians and go to chapter number 12. 1 Corinthians chapter number 12. And I'd like you to look at verse number 10 with me. Verse number 10. Read it out loud with me. 1 Corinthians 12, 10. Read it together with me now. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, diverse kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. This context in 1 1 Corinthians 12.10, the context is the gifts of the Holy Spirit in that first century. And it makes a distinction between prophecy and tongues. So if you go back to Acts chapter 2, Peter did quote Joel, no question about it. And right on the heels of speaking in tongues, Peter quotes Joel. So it's understandable how people can make a mistake and get confused and think that Peter is saying, this, what you just saw, this tongues business, this was prophesied by Joel. Hundreds and hundreds of years ago in Joel chapter 2, you can read it when you go home, but this is the fulfillment of that prophecy. And some people take that as the meaning. But I suggest to you that is wrong. You say, well, Joel, what was he talking about? He was talking about prophecy. What was happening here on the day of Pentecost? Tongues. Two different things. And folks, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to look at these two and say, now something's different here. Something's not the same. The Bible is very clear and very specific. So if the prophecy and the tongues are not the same, does Joel's prophecy have any effect on the day of Pentecost? What was Joel talking about? What was he saying? What was Peter talking about when he quoted Joel? So this is where we need to look exactly at what the Holy Spirit has recorded for us. This is where I want you to slow down a little bit and look exactly at what's in Acts chapter 2. So first, we're going to look at the expression that Peter used because he prefaced the quote from Joel with a certain expression. 
Verse 16. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now over the years I've heard people say it and I've read them write it that they quote this is that and they try and build a case on three words. This is that. But that's not the full expression. The full expression is this is that which. That's the full expression. That full expression is only found three times in the whole Bible. Once it's found here. The other two times it's found back in the book of Exodus. Do you get what I'm getting at? If we look at how this expression was used in other ways, then we know how it's used here. Back in Exodus chapter 16, it says, This is that which the Lord hath said. And then Moses goes on to quote what God says. In, in Exodus chapter 29, it says, This is that which thou shalt offer. And then it goes on to tell you what you're supposed to offer. So in both cases, this is that which is a preface, a preface to what he's about to say. And that's how Peter used it here. This is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In other words, I'm going to tell you what Joel said. Here's what Joel said. Peter wasn't saying what just happened is what Joel said. He's saying, no, no, here's what Joel said. He's not talking about the tongues. He's talking about what Joel prophesied. Now what's he got in mind here? All right, okay, well, bear with me. Because next we have to look at the punctuation. Oh, pastor, you're killing me with this. No, I'm not. By the way, I, I would never kill you. And, and, and don't take that out of context. But I want you to look at the punctuation. You all know what a question mark is. Yes? It means what? Question. You all know what a period is. It means what? Statement. Do you know what a semicolon is? Do you know what a comma is? Do you know what a full colon is? Now a comma is where you separate little clauses within the statement. I bought a loaf of bread and a can of peas and a bunch of bananas. Period. We got two commas there separating these little clauses. Now, if we want to show more separation, but not a full period, we use a colon. That's what a colon is for. It shows the furthest amount of separation without a period. That's what a, I'm sorry, did I say colon? I meant semicolon. If I said colon, sorry, I'm getting old. You know, the old men shall dream dreams. <laughs> I'm dreaming, I'm in church with you. <laughs> A semicolon shows the furthest amount of pause without it being a whole new sentence. And that's what we have here. But quickly, the colon, if it was a full colon, a dot over a dot, it shows that what happens on the right-hand side has equalness to the left-hand side. It's just a further explanation. You've heard me say this in, in the past. You take the time, uh, 12.10 a.m., well, the 12 means 12 hours, the 10 means 10 minutes. Are you with me so far? They're both elements of time. But the 10 gives you a little further explanation of the 12. It's not just 12, it's 12.10. And we separate it with a full colon. And so, what's on the other side has equality to this side. It's a further explanation of it. If Peter had used, if the Holy Spirit had used a full colon, 
then we would be tempted to say, well, yeah, the tongue's equal with what Joel said. But that's not what you have here. Look at verse 16 again. But this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. What comes next? Say it. Semicolon. If it were a colon, then we'd be tempted to say, okay, well, yeah, maybe the tongues they spoke were what Joel was talking about. But that's not what's used. It's a semicolon. Now, I know that this is not going to make or break any nation or anything like that. But it is one more little piece of exactness of our Bible. What we have here is a little witness to us, telling us. Peter is not saying that the tongues that they just heard was equal with the prophecy of Joel. Peter was simply saying, here's something interesting the prophet Joel said. I'm going to quote him for you. That's the context. And the lastly, that actually brings us to our third observation, is context. Now I want you to look at this once again. I'm going to pick up now where I left off in verse 18. I want you to follow with me verses 19 and 20 because this is the rest of Joel's prophecy. And I want you to look at this with me. Joel said, And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath. Blood. By the way, notice after beneath, there's a semicolon. You notice that? Blood, there's a comma. And fire, there's a comma. And vapor of smoke. And there's a colon. Next verse. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and, ter- and great and notable day of the Lord come. So look at verse 19 and 20. On the day of Pentecost, were there wonders in heaven above, signs in the earth beneath, blood, fire, vapor of smoke? Was the sun turned into darkness and the moon into blood? Did any of that happen on the day of Pentecost? And the answer is a very simple what? No. None of that happened on the day of Pentecost. The context of Joel should tell us it's not a prophecy of the day of Pentecost. I want you to know something. In the Old Testament, the New Testament church was not even known. It was a total mystery. There is no prophecy of the New Testament church in the Old Testament. It was a total mystery. The way the... um, theologians describe it is they show a picture of an Old Testament prophet and looking at two mountain peaks and the first mountain peak is the first coming of Jesus to the earth when he was born in in, uh, the manger and uh, died on the cross And, and then they see the second peak where Jesus comes back to the earth for the millennial kingdom. So they, they see the first coming, they see the second coming, but they don't see the valley in between. That's the church. There is no Old Testament prophecy of a New Testament church. Joel was not speaking about the day of Pentecost because Joel knew nothing of it and God purposely kept the whole church, the New Testament church, a mystery, a secret from the Old Testament prophet. They knew nothing of it. The disciples knew nothing of it. And when Jesus changed his preaching from the kingdom to the cross, they were thunderstruck. What's going on? It was a tough pill for them to swallow. But they did, because we have now the day of grace, the age of grace, the covenant of grace was ushered in on that day of Pentecost. So you see here, the, when you look at the Bible, literally, grammatically, historically, when you look at it with common sense, Peter wasn't talking about a fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. May I paraphrase for you what Peter was saying to the crowd that day 
when they were astonished. What's going on here? All these languages. And then Peter stands up and he quotes Joel. Literally, what Peter is saying is, Men of Judea, what you're seeing today should not startle you. Remember that even Joel talked about some amazing things that would happen one day to our sons and our daughters. That's why Peter quoted Joel. To remind the crowd that the Old Testament prophets spoke of a coming day when some amazing things were going to happen. So this shouldn't amaze you. That's what he was saying. By the way, Joel's day hasn't come yet. It's still future. It's going to happen in the tribulation time, which has not happened yet. Which is another reason why I suggest you get yourself one of these things. To be opened if we all suddenly disappear. Because I'm telling you, unsaved family members, unsaved relatives, unsaved neighbors, they're going to come knocking, pounding on your door. They ought to know you're a Christian. They ought to know you go to church. They ought to know you carry a Bible. So you're the first door they're going to hit. What's going on? And they need to know what's happening. So anyhow, just a little word to the wise there. Well, Peter got their attention. But the main thing that happened that day was 3,000 people got saved. Peter preached Christ to those people. After the Holy Spirit got their attention, Peter preached Christ to them and 3,000 got saved. By the way, I just throw this in. Some people will give you the impression that the gift of tongues is found all over the New Testament era, the first century. It wasn't. The gift of tongues is only mentioned three times, count them, three times in the whole book of Acts. The book of Acts covers 40 years of church history. 40 years of church history. Tongues is mentioned three times. That's how prominent it was. But yet you look around today and you get a totally different idea, don't you? That's why it's important that we stick to the Scriptures. But remember, we're talking about the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. So when we stand back and we look at the overall picture, what did the Holy Spirit accomplish that day, 2,000 years ago on that Feast of Pentecost? Number one, He got the Jews' attention by the sound of the rushing mighty wind and by the miracle of languages. He got their attention. Number two, He filled Peter so as to preach the gospel. Number three, He brought conviction and faith to 3,000 souls. They got saved and baptized. Folks, this is the great miracle of the Holy Spirit. That the 3,000 got saved and followed the Lord in the waters of baptism. The Holy Spirit saved souls and built a great church. And I'll tell you something. That same Holy Spirit is here today doing the very same soul saving. That's the wonderful thing. Now, I'm done here. I've gone a little over time. I'm done. But we're faced with this question. Or at least we're faced with a thought. I want you to think this thought because it's a good thought. If we want the Holy Spirit to make good use of our lives here on earth, then we need to get in line with the program that the Holy Spirit started 2,000 years ago to get people's attention and preach Christ to them so that they can be saved. That's the Holy Spirit's program. And the Spirit of God is still building great churches. I want to encourage you to pray today and tomorrow and every day. Holy Spirit, use me. Use my life. Use me somehow to help someone else to get saved. 
I want to suggest to you that you start making a list of unsaved people that you are praying for. Someone's got to pray for these lost people to be saved. Someone. And if not you, then who? Make a list. It could be three, four, five people. It could be ten people. You know, I pray for a lot of lost people every day. And I decided once I was going to add up how many people I'm praying for. You know, I'm praying for 90 people. 90, nine zero people. Every day I'm praying for their salvation. And I often think if I don't pray for their salvation, who else do I know of that's praying for the salvation of some of my friends I grew up with? Of some of my family members? Of some of the people I know in this city and even attend this church occasionally that are not yet born again, are not yet saved. And I hold their names up. I hold them up before the Lord. You need to do the same. You need to pray for lost people. And by the way, keep praying for that 104 building. With that building, we can reach this whole city, folks. The whole city will listen to us. We'll be able to send out far more missionaries and train far more full-time servants of the Lord with that building. Keep praying. It's a battle. Keep praying. God will remove all of the obstacles. God would give us that building. Keep praying. Your prayers are important. They work. Don't quit. Don't give up. Well, it's time for us to have a word of prayer. Would you stand to your feet? I'd like to encourage you. We'll just have a short invitation today. But I'd like to encourage you to come and pray that the Holy Spirit will use you and come and start praying for some of your lost friends and family members. That same Holy Spirit that brought conviction and faith to 3,000 people in one day can bring your friends and family members to Jesus Christ. But you need to pray. You need to pray. Remember, the disciples were all together and they were praying. And we need to do the same. So let's bow our heads. Thank you for watching the message today. We invite you to join us again every Sunday and Wednesday for more inspiring messages from God's Word.